Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to episode 47 of District of Conservation. Today is a special occasion because this is the anniversary episode of the podcast launch. Yes, we launched about 365 days ago. It's been quite a whirlwind and I appreciate you all joining in for the ride. We have hit some critical milestones in this short amount of time. The podcast has inspired some lively debate. We've brought on some unique guests and storytellers. We have the great fortune of cracking the top 100 outdoor category podcast on Apple Podcasts before it was changed to the wilderness category. We reached the 71st spot, which was really cool. We were listed as one of 13 great podcasts hosted by conservative women by the Independent Women's Forum, which is a very high honor, and so much more. I anticipate many more public policy discussions, wonderful guests, commentary, and hopefully reaching more milestones. I cannot thank Real Camel Girl enough for sponsoring. It's been a huge blessing to have their support. If you are a returning listener and haven't left us a review, feel free to leave one. Every review goes a long way. If you're a first-time listener, I appreciate you tuning in and giving us your consideration. Make sure you subscribe and download future episodes going forward should you feel inclined. The more downloads, the more traction we get. For today's episode, I have a jam-packed discussion about several interesting matters that are breaking and things of that sort. So here are today's topics. Tis the season. Hunting season has returned. All across America, we saw people post pictures and comment about the return of the illustrious, wonderful pastime that many Americans have enjoyed across decades and centuries hunting season with the start of dove and goose openers. I saw friends from Minnesota to the deep south to all over the place to California even post about successful hauls from dove hunting. By the looks of it, a lot of good times were had with season opener. Dove poppers were made and people were posting about their future and upcoming hunting plans for the 2019-2020 hunting season. And it seems that they appear to be underway. As an adult onset hunter, because I have not so much experience in it, I'm new to it and I'm perfectly fine with explaining that and confirming that with you all because it's important to be transparent. I've never claimed I've been an expert and I don't want to. I'm pretty good at fishing. I'm decent there, but I am, like I said many, many times before, an adult onset hunter. During my first season in the 2017 to 2018 hunting season, I was very lucky and I was able to harvest several really cool birds in my first time ever going hunting. I I harvested pheasants, chuckers, quails, and even got my very first duck, a ready duck. This past season, I wasn't as fortunate in harvesting my intended wildlife species as I had wanted to but I certainly got more time in the field. 
I had a clean miss on a six-point buck white-tailed deer during muzzleloader season in late October, early November. I think it was November when I did that. And I couldn't shoot turkeys, although we saw hens in the spring uh, prior on the last day of season in May because it was a hen. So for me, it was a season of learning, seeing a lot of wildlife, having things perfectly in my crosshairs, and missing. Took shots, but I did not hit um, the six-point buck that I was intending to, to shoot because I wasn't really comfortable with muzzleloader. And I was able to get a start on this third season, the 2019 to 2020 hunting season for me. And I had a clean miss of a wild boar in northeast Georgia while hunting on a client's property. Pulsar night vision is something that's unfamiliar for me. So I think that's what complicated matters. I, again, <laughs> maybe was nervous. That you, you get those feelings when you realize you're about to take a life. You should get those feelings when you are hunting. You shouldn't be having bloodlust. You should be pretty overwhelmed by the fact that you are going to be taking a life to nourish yourself. But I'm hoping when I go back for a client event in October, I'll be more successful. And I have some more hunts planned underway. I'm hoping with the help of some of my friends at Outdoor Access, I'm going to finally bag my first white-tailed deer somewhere in Loudoun or Fairfax County or maybe somewhere closer to Richmond, depending upon their schedules and what's convenient. I hope to do that during rifle season. I'm planning to hopefully target more waterfowl in spite of the uh, bad flyway forecast that has been put out there by Ducks Unlimited and other sources. Uh, the flyway hasn't really been doing well from what people have said. Snow geese and whatever may come my way. If you're new to hunting, I suggest you start small and expand from there. Trust me, this approach is far more preferable and you're not going to feel stressed or pressured to have to bag the biggest animal, to have the biggest harvest, and then disappoint yourself and make a fool of yourself. You should very much start small. And it's important you find good hunting mentors. I've had the opportunity and good fortune to have several wonderful people take me under their wing uh, these past hunting seasons, especially this most recent season with Ken Perot when we went whitetail hunting during muzzleloader season. He writes for the Fredericksburg Freelance Star. I want to have him on the podcast at some point, so I'm going to reach out to him again and see what we can do there. And also my friend Chelsea and her father, they took me on their one of their leases that they have access to and taught me the ropes about turkey hunting more so. So I recommend you place your trust in experts if you're an adult onset hunter. And even if you're a more seasoned hunter, it's always good to go with other people. And please, 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 whether you're a new or seasoned hunter, I think it's imperative that you have this reminder in your mind that you know the regulations, you know when things are in season, you're not poaching, and also that you're familiar with the application periods for hunting tags. We don't have really strident rules here in Virginia. There's no real limit to things if you're especially targeting big game, whether it be black bear, white-tailed deer, or turkey. That's what our big game tag uh, consists of here in Virginia, except if you're applying for national wildlife refuges or special types of hunts, basic hunts for whitetail and big game species really have no time limit. You can apply any time in the year as long as you get it before hunting season starts. But it's important you do that because you won't get in trouble, obviously, if you know the regulations, you have the right tags, 
Or if you're venting on social media about missing certain application periods, you won't face scrutiny on social media. Everything is out there online at your disposal. We live in a very high information age. Knowledge is power. Everything is there. Know before you go out into the field, regardless of your experience level, and have fun. But again, don't embarrass yourself because hunters have a target placed on their back and any misstep that uh, could be either big or small, perceived to be big or small, is not good and will reflect very poorly on the industry. So know before you go. I believe there are two sides to every story. And obviously there's the truth somewhere in, in that framework. I have to be honest, I've been very reluctant to discuss this because political appointments or political nominations really do attract a lot of controversy and my being conservative, people are going to think I'm automatically lumped in with everything that a certain administration puts out there, whether it's this or if it's a Democrat administration, I'm wholly opposed to things. And usually that is the case when it's a Democrat, but I I'm not in agreement with everything a Republican administration does either. But I was very reluctant to discuss William Perry Pendley's appointment because I wanted to do some research before I comment on him. And he is tasked with, if you don't know, as uh, this deputy director for policy and programs, that's his post at BLM, Bureau of Land Management. He is tasked with overseeing 245 million acres of public land. Much of these lands are concentrated in about 12 states, uh, spanning from the Bureau of Land Management, the Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service under the purview of the Department of Interior, and also the U.S. Forest Service under the Department of Agriculture. Having done more research and assessed both perspectives, I feel compelled to discuss this a bit more and offer kind of a more balanced take over Mr. Pendley's appointment to the post. I heard his detractors and their comments uh, from particular hunting groups that were wholly opposed to him, painting him in a very negative light. And I've now finally heard from the man himself, the guy in question, since he published a newly released op-ed in the Denver Post. Upon his announcement to the post he currently holds, which obviously, as I mentioned, doesn't require congressional approval, certain departments can make these appointments uh, without or uh, superseding uh, the Senate nomination process, Mr. Pendley was portrayed as an evil land-grabbing hack. Uh, one group went so far as to call him a, quote, enemy of public land. I think enemy is a very strong choice of words, regardless of how you use it. So wording is very important. And that kind of captivated my interest. And when you hear that, you're like, oh, my goodness, this person is evil. Are they comparable to Stalin or Hitler or mass murderer? Uh, that, that's a really strong choice of words. So I wanted to assess whether or not this was true. More descriptions went on like this. They said his appointment to the post was a slap in the face and that it's ludicrous to even have him in consideration. And the reason why certain groups were opposed to his nomination or his appointment, I should say, to the post was rooted in several things. One, he wrote an op-ed in National Review, which is a conservative journal, something I've read for numerous years in which he published an article titled The Federal Government Should Follow the Constitution and Sell Its Western Lands, where he argued the following. For when you're perusing through this, and I'm including this in the show notes, yes, it does call for a transference of land. But I want to add more context because he actually does address the fact that 
multiple use is an effective public lands management tool, which a lot of us support and I, I will only support today. And here's what he said about this and how his article went. Multiple use was introduced in 1960 in the management of national forests and then extended to BLM lands in 1976. But something happened during the intervening years, the arrival of the environmental movement, beginning with the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 and continuing through a plethora of other federal laws. Congress dramatically enhanced the power of the, quote, public to intervene in land use decision making. For decades, the only people interested in such parochial issues as grazing on barren expanses of Western land were affected Westerners. Now scores of environmental groups that are not affected by federal decisions but are interested anyway have stepped forward as the hyper-engaged public. And this is very true with the EAJA, or I'm mislabeling the title, but the EAJA is heavily abused by environmental activists. That's true. This is There's no... No, you shouldn't have disagreement with this. And people certainly litigated and abused laws to do that. We see that a lot today and reforms are happening now to counter the EAJA and efforts like that. He proceeds as, nonetheless, it was not federal legislation that provoked the, quote, sagebrush rebellion, which I'm going to explain in just a moment. Another point of contention for his appointment to the post. It was the policies of the Carter administration. Carter viewed himself as an environmentalist and staffed federal offices with people from the movement. He later on proceeded later, a president Ronald Reagan declared that the federal government should be a quote, good neighbor end quote, and recognize state sovereignty and federalism. This is also the point of contention, which is what his title stems from. The founding fathers intended all lands owned by the federal government to be sold. After all jurisdiction over real property, that is property law was given to the states. That last sticking point, certainly anger, devout public lands proponents. And I think since publishing this op-ed, I'm going to read his new op-ed in the Denver Post. I think his message is a little more muted, perhaps because of the, the nature of the role that he's going to have. But also, I want to, again, read points of contention as to his appointment. A second point of contention is... Mr. Penley's previous involvement in the Mountain State Legal Foundation, which has sued on behalf of ranchers, grazers, private property owners, and other interests, which many preservationists and certain conservation groups don't like. And three, as I had mentioned earlier, he had endorsed the Sagebrush Rebellion, which was a movement in the 70s and 80s in response to the inception of the Federal Land Policy and Management Act of 1976 that essentially ended homesteading, and that was created in the 1800s. Their stated goal was to move management of public lands to states and localities, and some proponents even supported privatization of public lands. And it was also said that President Reagan allegedly endorsed this movement while campaigning in 1980 in August in, during a speech in Salt Lake City, and he was quoted as saying this as an endorsement of the movement. I happen to be one who cheers and supports the Sagebrush Rebellion. Count me in as a rebel. And that was taken from the Chicago Tribune. I'm going to perhaps elaborate more on this and why there is so much friction over multiple use of public lands, that management style versus those who are entirely against any type of multiple sustained yield use on public lands. And you don't really see 
except for a really small faction of people who are like, yes, you have to completely privatize every bit of land. But a lot of people are warming up to the idea that whatever is not in the purview of the federal government and the Department of Interior, especially when it comes to hunting and fishing regulations, directives that have been pushed recently by this DOI, they believe that states and localities can better manage issues like recovered species like the grizzly bear out in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and things of that sort. So allowing more oversight to the states and localities doesn't really mean you're going to be transferring of hands. They're still working in concert with the federal government and they have to because they receive Pittman Robertson funds. And if you don't, you're not going to get those funds, but it, it allows more discretion to the states and localities while still adding management. It's very complex, but we're going to explain more about multi-use sustainable yield management of public lands in the future. I've argued for it uh, here on the podcast, and I think preservationists are now the ones that are pushing the really extreme end where they believe no multiple use, no no mixed use of public land should, should happen. And I know some of you listening have made up your mind about this guy, and you think he's evil and perhaps wrongheaded and not suitable for the position, but... I want you to hear his take two. And here's what his op-ed sounds like. Here's the first excerpt. The Trump administration is crystal clear in its opposition to any wholesale disposal or transfer of federal lands. Secretary of the Interior David Bernhardt is steadfast in that opposition. And I, as a proud member of the Trump administration, I am as well. I am a Marine. And the oath I swore on July 15th, 2019 to uphold the laws and the Constitution is as important to me as the one I took upon joining the Corps five decades ago. My fidelity will prove just as strong now as it was then. He adds this. Contrary to characterizations by the press regarding my career in leading a nonprofit public interest law firm based in Colorado, I represented those left behind when the tourists depart. The men, women, families, and communities that ranch, log, mine, explore for energy, or otherwise must depend on the federal lands that surround them. And here's what he's also quoted as saying, and most major news outlets posted this, but I'm, I'm pulling this from the Washington Times, and that'll also be in the show notes. And he says, you know, I am a Marine, and I understand the chain of command and following orders, he said. The president has made it very clear that we do not believe in the wholesale transfer of federal lands. That's the president's position. That's the secretary's position. And now that I am deputy director of the Bureau of Land Management, that's my position. Does this sound like the musings of an enemy of public lands? Do you think this guy is a monster? Does it refute or negate much of the accusations leveled at him? I'll let you guys be the judge of that. But having spoken to the secretary of interior himself a few months ago, who went on the record with me for sporting classics and has been quoted in numerous national publications as well, saying that the wholesale transfer of public lands is against his agenda and the mission statement of his agency. I'm going to try my best to take Pendley's words at face value because he is at the discretion and mercy of secretary Bernhardt and secretary Bernhardt has been given a mandate by Trump to preserve conservationist policies as it relates to public lands management. If I'm wrong in my assessment and giving him the benefit of the doubt, I will say so. But I think media characterizations with every single issue that comes out at hand, and perhaps people evolve and maybe moderate their tone and perhaps understand that you cannot take extreme measures when it comes to public lands management. And instead you settle for a practical solution like multiple use management yield, sustained yield, 
And I think we're going to see more of that come from this administration. And again, I'm not apologizing or speaking on behalf. I'm not a lackey, but just having assessed what information has been presented, having talked to members of this administration and also talking to various stakeholders, I think we're going to see, again, a true conservation agenda with this multiple use management yield system in place be in effect. And I'm hoping this this gentleman does that. And I think if he goes on to actually promote a true conservation agenda, I think his detractors need to issue a correction and give him an apology and... You know, try not to use such fighting words that everything is so politically charged now. And I wish people wouldn't jump the gun on issues. So we have to give the benefit of the doubt. And if this person steps out of line, we can rightly call him out. But he's following a directive. I don't see him deviating, especially in such a administration that gets so much scrutiny. I don't see him departing from the wishes of Secretary Bernhardt at all. More positively... The Department of Interior just announced it's opening another 1.4 million acres of public lands to fishing and hunting opportunities. And get this, it's on 77 national wildlife refuges and 15 national fish hatcheries. This is a similar move to what the agency did, the department did, a few months ago where they similarly opened up 1.4 million acres of land uh, also to hunting and fishing opportunities yet the first time on national fish hatcheries. And here is what the official press release reads from August 30th. This is the largest single effort to expand hunting and fishing access in recent history, said Secretary, said Secretary Bernhardt. President Trump has made increasing public access and streamlining government functions priorities of his administration, and this new rule delivers on both fronts given the unprecedented expansion of public acreage and removal or revision of 5,000 hunting and fishing regulations to more closely match state laws. It's more than double the acreage that has already been opened or expanded compared to the last five years combined. And again, this is under the purview of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service under the Department of Interior. I think this is a really good step, and it's continuing with the true conservation agenda we are seeing from this administration Believe it or not, they actually are listening to sportsmen. They're expanding access. And the proof is in the pudding. I'm not a mouthpiece. I'm just reading to you guys simple facts. Thank you for listening to District of Conservation. As I mentioned earlier, you can help the podcast reach more people by subscribing, downloading, sharing your thoughts on the podcast. And if you feel inclined, leaving a five-star review if you can. Thank you for listening, and I hope you like the content, and stay tuned for more. We're going to have an exciting second season of District of Conservation, the podcast. Have a good week, and good luck hunting.